Amen. So I preached through this week. We read through Joel, so I'll be preaching through the book of Joel, which I think is uh, a really amazing book and has a lot to say to us uh, even now. So we are going to read through a section of Joel. And something that surprised me but didn't shock me is that in this passage, in coincidence with what we're doing, Joel calls the people to a fast. A lot of Joel is about fasting and turning to God and seeking his face for him to move and to have mercy and to show his grace to us. So you'll put that verse up on the board for me, Luke. Joel 1.14, the prophet Joel says, Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So this is a passage where to give some context, Joel, the prophet, is prophesying to the nation of Israel that they need to repent of their sin. They need to change their thinking, to change their mind, to change their direction and walk the other direction from how they were living. And at the time that the prophet Joel shared this prophecy, the people of Israel were feeling very motivated because God had disrupted their lives in a very significant way for the purpose of turning them from their sin and showing them mercy, which is God's purpose always when he interrupts his people's lives. God never punishes or disciplines people for punishment and discipline's sake. For those of us who are living, when God disrupts your life, it's because he wants you to turn to him as fully as possible so he can show his mercy, his love, and his grace to you. That's what it's all about. He wants to reorient us and show us himself. And all, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, the Bible says, but if we are trained by it, then we can really reap a harvest of righteousness. So Joel is prophesying to the nation who's very motivated at this moment to change their minds, change their direction, walk away from their sin, and repent. And at the time of the prophet Joel, there was a, a, a natural disaster that God had, in this case, brought on the people for walking in sin. And it really is kind of a small thing that God did in a way, but it led to amazing kind of consequences. God sent a swarm of locusts onto the land, and they consumed all of the vegetation of the land. And it caused a chain reaction where the crops were destroyed. The lack of food for livestock uh, made, the, made the livestock very sick or, or unhealthy and unable to yield what they normally yield. And ultimately, this upended and devastated their economy. God was trying to get their attention. And it didn't really take much from God to do that. All he had to do was send a swarm of locusts. It's an amazing thing. And again, God's purpose here was not retribution, but was to get the attention of the people, which he did very successfully, so that they could be humbled as a nation, so that they could receive his blessing and live under his blessing once again. But I got thinking this week, it's amazing just how little it really takes for our lives to be upended. A swarm of locusts comes and, and just devastates the economy, a, stor- a swarm of locusts. How many, I mean, everyone thought to themselves in Joel's time, I guarantee you, let's keep doing what we're doing. Everything is going well. We don't even really need to seek after God or repent of our sin. We can keep walking in this sin because everything is going good. There's prosperity in the land. But all God had to do to get their attention was send a a big cloud of locusts to come and upend the entire economy. And all of a sudden, people are saying, oh, nothing's okay. Everything's gone. This is crazy. 
And how many times in our lives is God trying to get our attention? And it doesn't really take that much to upend our lives. Think about, you know, it says in the scriptures that instead of saying, tomorrow we're going to do this and this thing and we're going to do business here and make money here, instead of saying that, you should say, if it's the Lord's will, we will do these things because we're not guaranteed that tomorrow is going to go as smoothly as we project it will in our minds. But in our minds, we have this illusion of security and prosperity that is just on our lives. Everything's going to be fine just the way it is. And that comfortability that we have, often, because we're sinful people, will cause us to drift away from reliance and trust in God, and even to drift into sin and walking in sin. The illusion that everything is going to be just fine the way it is. Many people will walk in sin for long periods of time, thinking everything's fine, everything's going to be great, I'll keep going in this direction, and all of a sudden, the natural consequences of that sin falls on them, and they're, they're shocked. But truly, every day that we have that is at peace, and things are well with our health and our families and our finances, is a precious gift from God. And we have to receive that gift with humility, knowing that it just might take a small amount of insects to upend the whole thing. When we're living, for the challenge for us living in peace and prosperity as Americans, and even the poorest of us are prosperous by world standards, is to remember God in the midst of prosperity. There's nothing wrong with things going well. In fact, we thank God for it. But we have to not forget God just because we're comfortable. This is what happens to people. They forget God when things are going well because they think, well, I guess I don't really need him. Giving thanks in good times, giving thanks in bad times. It doesn't take much for everything to flip and for things to start going very poorly. And if we're not meaningfully connected to God, you know, I, I pity the person that comes under a terrible... Uh, tragedy, and their relationship with God is just not there to lift them up and carry them through that. Um, God is always trying to get our attention, and sometimes it doesn't take very much to do that. When God chooses to get our attention through the troubles of our lives, as in the case of Israel, the good news is that all we need to do is humble ourselves and turn to him, and he gives mercy. We read from Jonah last week, the reluctant prophet Jonah. He uh, was not excited about preaching God's message of, of repentance to the Ninevites because he did not want them to repent and be forgiven by God because he hated them. He had a, a racism problem in his heart, uh, a nationalist problem in his heart. And Jonah says to God in Jonah 4, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity, which is why I did not want to preach to the Ninevites. I didn't want you to show that grace and that mercy to those people. But this is the nature of God. When people respond to the troubles of their lives by turning to him, God acts in grace and compassion, in love and kindness and mercy. That's the great news. I would venture to say that most of what happens to us in our lives is not a direct cause of God's judgment on our lives. Bad things happen in this world that we live in. Uh, since sin and death and decay entered the world through Adam and Eve, bad stuff just happens in this world to us most of the time. So I'd venture to say that most of what happens to us is not God's judgment on us, but simply the natural course of the world. However, in Romans 8.28, it says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So 
even through things that are just the natural course of living in a sinful world, even through those things, God can work goodness and righteousness for those who love Jesus. Um, all things do not come from God, but God uses all things for the good of believers. So the point, the point is, of this first section, God is not behind or causing every natural disaster or difficulty we face, but God is always, always, always using everything in our lives to bring us to a place of seeking his face and repentance of our sins. That's what God does. Let's continue on in Joel 2, uh, 12 to 32, which will be the main text of our sermon today. It says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Joel 2.12 says, God is looking for wholehearted worshipers. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. God is looking for wholehearted worshipers. He's longing for those kinds of followers of him, but there aren't that many of them, turns out, in the world. James describes us as a people who are double-minded and unstable in what we do much of the time. Another way to translate that would be two-hearted, two-hearted. And when you are double-minded and unstable in all you do, uh, then it's very hard to turn to God with your entire heart because you're, 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 you're divided. I watched with a level of morbid curiosity one episode of a reality show uh, about polygamous Mormons in Utah where there were three wives and one husband. I'm not going to mention the name of the show. It was called Three Wives and One Husband. <laughs> <clears throat> you know what's unstable is having your affection being split across three different spouses. That's an unstable situation. It doesn't look fun at all, contrary to what someone might tell you. Polygamy always kind of goes in a bad way, even for the people of the Bible who lived in polygamous relationships. Uh, this was a very nice guy in this program, this reality show. He seemed like he was doing his very best in a bad situation, buying flowers for one and all of his wives. Uh, but the tension was always present. There was a tension between the wives, where they tried to not be jealous of each other, but they couldn't help it. It was an unnatural thing. There was a tension and uncertainty from the husband trying to do his best to love all these wives equally, but at the end, causing an awkward tension between him and his wives, between the wives and one another. It was just not a good situation. So your goal should be that your life's documentary, your life's reality show is not called Three Gods, One Disciple. Because it's really awkward. It doesn't work. You cannot worship both God and money, the Bible says. You cannot worship both God and entertainment. You cannot worship both God and sexual immorality as defined by God. You cannot worship both God and materialism. These are the gods of our culture, just a few of them. The things that we put our trust into, the things that we are shaped by, the things that we worship. And the truth is, until we turn to God wholeheartedly, we are going to continue to be shaped by the gods we are actually worshiping in our hearts. We are going to be shaped in our lives and our decisions are going to be shaped by what is most entertaining to us. And we will forsake 
putting God first. Our lives are going to be shaped by what is sexually interesting and adventurous to us, and God is going to be put on the back burner. Our lives are going to be shaped by getting money, coveting, and greed, and one-upping our neighbors, and God will fall by the wayside. You cannot serve both God and these other gods. You cannot be three gods, one disciple. We must be fully devoted disciples of Jesus. So, One of the ways God uses this natural disaster in Joel, these locusts to upend the whole economy, is to give the people an opportunity to be wholeheartedly focused on him again. No longer walking in sin and no longer trusting that everything's going to be just fine without God. At that moment, they were given this ability to be wholehearted. When God gets our attention in this kind of way, we become motivated to seek him alone and cast aside those things that are not essential to our faith in God. You always hear that uh, when someone is on their deathbed, they don't say, bring me all the piles of money I earned in my life. Bring me the trophies I earned at work to comfort me. You can't bring that stuff with you. And death and being on one's deathbed is a clarifying life event, much like a calamity that was brought on the Israelites through these locusts. It clarifies what is really important, what's valuable. I mentioned this program a few weeks ago that uh, in Christian circles, they had a program called, I think it was Six Months to Live. So they said, how would you live if you knew you only had this amount of time? And it challenged people to think about the, the loose ends in their lives that are not honoring God, the other gods they were worshiping and putting their trust into, and to clarify Am I wholeheartedly following God? Or am I, am I like married to three different gods trying to, trying to worship them all equally? It can't be done. So when God gets our attention, we become motivated to seek after him alone. And one of the things this fast is really good for is that we are fasting proactively to take something out of our life to intentionally put God first in our lives. We are drawing near to God, as James says. And the writer of Scripture says, if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. So this fast is, is about looking at our hearts. And we often cannot identify it, but looking at our hearts, seeing who are we serving besides God? Whose interests are we serving besides God? What people, possessions, positions in life are we placing above our Lord Jesus Christ? And how do we live in a way of being wholehearted worshipers of God. It says in 2 Chronicles 16.9, the eyes of the Lord roam across the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. There's a promise there in the Bible that when you make an effort to wholeheartedly put your faith and trust and love and affection onto God as your one Lord and your one Savior, the one you worship, that God strengthens that person. And he looks for those people so that he can strengthen them. Again, there's not many of these wholehearted worshipers out there, but we have the opportunity to be one of them. We have the opportunity to be a church of people that put God first above the gods of our age. And that is something that is available to any of us who are following God. Picking it up in verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, Rend your heart, tear your heart, and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, 
for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending, sending calamity. Who knows? This is one of my favorite little phrases in the Bible. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings from the, for the Lord your God. I love the language of Scripture when it comes to talking about seeking after God and repenting. First, God doesn't want us to outwardly repent of our sins. Rob Reimer says, we're never going to move forward in our relationship with God till we worry about how we actually are instead of worrying about how we look to other people. So we stop performing for other Christians and other people in the world until we actually desire God. We're not going to be able to grow. God does not want us to outwardly repent and to appear to be a better Christian. God wants our hearts to be changed. He cares about the heart more than we will ever know. God desires um, that we tear our hearts, not our garments, which was the the popular way of showing remorse and repentance in the time that this was written. The king or the people would tear their garments. We saw, saw this in the book of Jonah in an outward display. But something you notice is when people do that, it's not much longer until that person is right back to where they started because they did not tear their hearts. They tore their garment only. And that does not make a, a substantial change in somebody. God desires radical inward life change to occur. He desires us to humble ourselves, tear our hearts, not our clothing, to return with all of our heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And our motivation in seeking God in this way, as New Testament believers especially, with the revelation that we have through Jesus Christ, is that we know something about God. We know that God is not trying to judge us or discipline us for the sake of judging and disciplining us, as if that caused him some kind of pleasure. God does not show pleasure in people being disciplined and judged or the destruction of wicked people. God does not enjoy that. God is by nature, according to this passage and countless others in the Bible who say this phrase verbatim, gracious and compassionate. This is who he is. Slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And he's one who relents from sending calamity, if at all possible. Tremendous amounts of patience. Years of warnings and telling people, change your direction, change your direction, change your direction, before God even judges people or works, or works in that kind of way in their lives. He's so patient. So we know this about God as New Testament believers. Based on God's goodness, when God grabs our attention through some kind of external circumstance, like these locusts, and we turn back to him, we can be sure that we will find someone who is gracious, who is compassionate, who is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. That's who God is. And we don't have to worry that if we come to God after, after walking in the, in the wrong direction for a long period of time, that God will not receive us. All who come to him, he will by no means turn away. It's an open-door policy with God. And when we make an effort to wholeheartedly repent and turn towards him, we will find every resource and every aspect uh, of God that we need to make that change. He will strengthen the hearts of those who are fully his. So based on his goodness, we know. We know how God will, will receive us. Not only that, in this passage, I, as I pointed out, God is also a God of great surprises and holy mystery. There is a mysterious thing in this passage where it says, 
Who knows? God may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. And that's the tagline of the sermon. Who knows? If you seek after God and turn to him wholeheartedly, who knows what blessing he desires to leave behind? Who knows? God knows. It's a mystery to me. Conversely, if you do not seek after him, who knows what blessing you might forfeit that he wanted to give you? Our God is a God of, of mystery and a God who rewards those, the scriptures say, who earnestly seek after him. It says in Matthew 6, a long line of teachings about how we are to engage with God from the heart. And Jesus teaches that we are to pray, you know, privately. We are to give privately. We are to fast privately. And it says in that scripture that our Heavenly Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward us. What is the reward? Who knows? I don't know. But there is, in the loving kindness, grace, and in the amazingness of our Father God, there is a reward for every person who seeks after him. And, you know, the television preachers will say, you know, it's a jumbo jet or something, right? Now, we do not control how God rewards us. We do not control the gifts that God give, gives. This is God's prerogative. And God knows who we are, what we've been through, and what we actually need. And God will reward you somehow if you seek after him in this way. Not only will he draw near to you, the Bible says he will reward you. So I love that. Who knows? Maybe he will turn and leave behind a blessing. Joel is kind of using his imagination here. Who knows that when you're seeking after God, he might begin a work of healing in your soul from something that happened to you many, many years ago? Who knows? Who knows? Maybe God will provide what you need monetarily if you seek him in, in private prayer. Who knows? Who knows? God is under no obligation, but God is good, and God is kind, and God rewards those who earnestly seek him one way or another. Part of the delight in leading the church through a fast is that I don't know how God is going to bless your life, but I know that he will, because I believe the Bible, and the Bible says he will. It's exciting to hear last year some of the fruit of this fast in your lives, how God used it in your life, um, and what he left behind. But as for me, I don't know. I don't know what he's going to do. Who knows? Maybe you'll never know what God has in store for you till you seek him wholeheartedly. And maybe you've never tried to do that before. But God will meet us more than halfway. If we will draw near to him, he will draw near to us. It's a much longer distance for him to come than it is for us to come. God's amazing. We take a step, and God meets us. He's a gracious God, loving kindness, slow to anger, rich in love. Who knows? Let's read on in verse 15. This will be a longer section. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Now, which of you brought the trumpet for later? Yeah, meet on January 1st and blow the trumpet. That's how you do it. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. 
Bring together the elders. Gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. And here is the word of the Lord now, after the prophet has, been, has gotten through talking. The Lord replied to them, I am sending you grain, new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will dr- drown in the Dead Sea, and its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea, and its stench will go up. Its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals. For the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in your God. For he has given you the autumn rains. Because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains, as before. The threshing floors will now be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locusts and the young locusts and the other locusts and the locust swarm. My great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full. You will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God. There is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. Look at that response. When the people turned to God, his gracious response, for the people that had begun to seek him wholeheartedly, as the people respond to the elders' call to fast, as even the religious leaders repented of their wickedness and that of the people, and as everyone tears their hearts instead of their garments, God comes and leaves a blessing behind. And I want you to notice that he restores everything that was gone and then some. So where, where, where it used to be that everything was steady and regular and they could trust in their economy and everything's just fine, now the vats are overflowing with wine and oil. Even the wild beasts, God says, you know, I'm sending the green grass for you guys. You're going to be okay too. It's amazing. He restores everything. And then he makes a promise which has reverberated through my soul for the last few years, ever since somebody prayed for me and this was a word they had from God for me. He says in verse 25, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust and the young locust, the other locusts and the locust swarm my great army that I sent among you. What does that phrase tell us about God? That says that God is a God of redemption. He is a redeemer. And God redeems our lives, as the scriptures say, from the pit and crowns us with love and compassion. Not only does he restore things to how they were or better in this case, but he says he will also repay us for the years the locusts have eaten in our lives. One of the blessings God leaves behind when he comes and meets his people is this promise of redemption. 
He turns our darkness into light. The thing that we felt was completely hopeless, he redeems and repurposes for his use. This is what uh, the psalmist King David said, the Lord is my lamp. He turns my darkness into light. One of the blessings he leaves behind is redemption. God somehow mysteriously redeems the years the locusts have eaten for our good. How will he do this in our lives? Well, I can't tell you exactly because I don't know your full story or your full brokenness or what you've been through. But God promises that he will redeem every part of our lives. Each of us has had a path of, of brokenness and a trail of sin behind us, heavy loads of consequences for our mistakes in life and our past actions. We have feelings of shame over what we've done. All this stuff we bring to our relationship with God when we come to him. And, you know, just because we're Christians doesn't mean we don't add to that load. Even as Christians, we lose sight and we add to that load of shame. We are each in a very unconscious and sometimes conscious way, trying to erase that stuff as we walk through our days, trying to, trying to somehow redeem it in our own way, make it mean something, make it meaningful. But what God wants us to do is simply turn to him wholeheartedly and let him do the redeeming as he sees fit. That's what God wants to do. God has a plan. God has a living hope through Jesus that is greater than your sin, greater than your past, greater than your shame, greater than your present circumstances. And when we turn to him, he redeems our lives, even from the very worst decisions that we have made. God will mysteriously, according to Romans 8.28, use all, repurpose all things for our good. If we love Jesus and we are called by Jesus, he will take even the stuff the locusts ate. Remember, the locusts were God's judgment. So even if you have received judgment for sins legitimately for something you've done or consequences that are legitimate for what you've done, God will pay you back and God will redeem your life from the pit. But we must stop trying to simply fix ourselves and begin to yield fully to the one who is our redeemer because we cannot redeem ourselves if we want to receive the benefit of our lives being redeemed. Who knows how God will turn even the worst stuff from your past into something that blesses your life and the lives of other people. Who knows? But it's about lordship. It's about humbling ourselves and presenting ourselves to God as living sacrifices and allowing him to do the work of redeeming, allowing him to do the work of rewarding, whatever he wants to do. Our responsibility is to turn to him fully. Finally, Joel leaves us with a very relevant promise which has been ratified through the Apostle Peter in the New Testament in Acts 2.17. This is a prophecy from Joel written almost 900 years before Jesus Christ came on the earth. Verse 28, it says, And afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. We are now living in the last days, which is between Jesus' first coming and resurrection and his second coming, which has yet to, to occur. In these days, 
as we seek after God's face, face through prayer, through fasting, through repentance, as we seek him, um, he pours out his spirit upon us again and again, his Holy Spirit, giving us within ourselves the source of his power, the source of his strength, and the source of his voice for us. We speak, it says in this passage, God's encouraging and convicting words to one another through prophecy. And again, this, this passage in Joel is defined by the Apostle Peter as when the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost and they were speaking in tongues and prophesying. This is what he says is for us today. In these days, as we seek God's face in prayer, he pours out his Spirit upon us again and again, giving us within ourselves the source of his divine voice. Who knows how God will speak to you now that you have the Holy Spirit after you turn to Jesus? Who knows? Who knows how God will use you to speak to other people by his voice? It says we dream dreams where God's voice speaks to us for ourselves and for others, for their encouragement. It says we see visions during the day that are not just for ourselves, but also for the encouragement of other people. The Holy Spirit dynamically communicating to us relevant information and helpful, encouraging words for both ourselves and other people. And it's for everybody, for men and women, for young and old, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the promise in this passage is, in these days that we live in, the last days, as we walk in the fullness of his Spirit, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And again, this is a 900-year-old prophecy by the time Jesus comes around. It's pushing towards this vision that this person, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, who died for our sins, that anyone who calls on the name of Jesus in these days will be saved. And those of us who are following him now will be caught up in the Spirit, and we will walk in his strength, we will speak his words, we will, we will lead people to a place where they can come to know the one who called us out of darkness and into light. I could preach many sermons, and I probably will, and I probably have, about what it means to have the Holy Spirit with us today in our lives and, and the relevance of that. But you get the idea. We are given the strength, the power, the very voice of God, the presence of Jesus within our lives. So whereas the people in the book of Joel um, had to listen to the voice of the prophet in order to get direction from God, we listen to the voice of the prophet, Jesus Christ, speaking to us by his written word, by his living word, through the voices of other Christians, and through the church. So this, this prophecy from Joel is meant to be, you know, it was, it was written at a relevant time for the good of these people who had wandered away uh, from God. But this is an opportunity for us to see the, who God is towards us, that when, we, when our lives get disrupted, when the water gets stirred, when the locusts come, it's not a sign that God's forsaken us or that God's punishing us for some kind of punishment's sake. It's God speaking to us. Whether we bring it on ourselves or it's something God brings along, God is speaking to you through your life. And God is calling you to wholeheartedly go after him. Calling you to wholeheartedly and humbly serve him alone and put aside the gods that creep into our lives and our culture. And there are many of them and to worship him alone. And the promise is that God is a redeemer. That all the things in our lives that the enemy meant for evil, that God will turn them and use them for the good. He will redeem our lives. He will pay us back for all the years the locusts have eaten. 
and that each of us who trust in the name of Jesus Christ are not only saved, but given the Holy Spirit of God, the inner counselor, and we are given the power to have the strength to follow him and to walk in this new way of life. I challenge you to really pray and seek the Lord and see how he would call you to fast and go after him. The promise is that when you make room for the Lord, he comes and fills you up. It's a time to discern between our worship of God and our worship of other things, to rededicate our lives to following Jesus. And the promise is that those who seek after him will be rewarded. God will reward you. God will bring you to a different uh, place in your spiritual life with him. For those who earnestly seek after him wholeheartedly, God will reward you. You will find something new. And our great privilege as New Testament Christians, again, is that Jesus has paid the full price for our, for our sins. There's no earning of our salvation to be done, but there is this opportunity now that we've been set free from sin and death to seek after God. Go before him boldly and grab on to the horns of the altar and just reach out to make that space. Let's do that together as we sing of his worthiness, who he is.